Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's review-only episode of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent reporter Alan Appel to talk about Blade Runner 2049. Hi, Tom. Or at least the first two hours of it. We'll see. Uh, we get to the, the latter 46 <laughs> minutes of it. The new sci-fi film noir from director Denis Villeneuve of Sicario and Arrival. This will be the third movie of Villeneuve's that we will have talked about on this show. Uh, that offers another look at the dystopian American future of uncanny androids and commercialized urban decay, originally envisioned by Ridley Scott's 1982 film Blade Runner. Allen, or Hologram Allen, or Replicant Allen, I'm not quite sure. Maybe right. we'll find out at the end of the intro. Oh, right. Welcome welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here, as always. It is a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Holding the hands of the person you love, interconnected. Inter- well, we'll do the Replicant test in a second. Uh, so, like Ridley Scott's original Blade Runner from 35 years ago, Blade Runner 2049 hinges upon the slippery, contentious relationship between humans and replicants, the bioengineered human-like androids who mankind relies upon for expendable labor, sexual indulgence, absolute obedience, and the eternal human desire to feel morally superior to someone or something for no good reason at all. Ryan Gosling plays Kay, a relatively new model of replicant who works as a Blade Runner for the LAPD. He chases down older, potentially mutinous models of replicants, quote-unquote retires them by putting bullets through their heads, and then returns to his apartment in a perpetually soggy Los Angeles, where advertisements for pleasure strut at every corner, threats of violence lurk in every stairwell, and the sun never, ever, ever shines. When Kay finds himself on an assignment to track down and destroy a child who was supposedly born to a replicant mother, his stolid existence is upended by the realization that the boundary between people and machines may not be as clear as he once thought. Unfortunately for Kay, this is a dangerous question to pursue, for a lot of people are invested in the clear separation of replicants and people. So, Alan, as you watched Blade Runner 2049, did you find yourself questioning your own tenuous humanity, eagerly following Kay on his pursuit to understand who he is, where he comes from, and what may or may not make him special? Or were you resigned to your own inevitable replicant artifice, unfeeling and unburdened by memories of greater movies of years past, which most likely were just memory implants anyway? Well, Tom... um I used to tell my kids that I was from Venus or Mars or, or one of those planets, and uh, they, they kind of looked at me uh, in the beginning when I would uh, tell them this. They looked at me as if it just might be true. So, um, no, I mean, one of the reasons I, 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 I mean, I like this movie is because it, it, it does play with those kinds of um, sci-fi questions that are, you know, it, that are easy. Uh, to pose and impossible to answer just in, just with intimations you know what does it mean to be uh, to be human and uh, the movie actually provides an answer to what it means to be human and if by that measure um you know i uh, i probably am i would say 40 50 percent replicant uh, because it's got to do with memory it doesn't the, the movie comes down to uh, if you have memories of things that if, if if your memories are of things that happened as opposed to being implanted which is the technique used for uh even the cool new replicants like ryan gosling then that makes you human they all they all want to have their own memories and it's it's quite touching and in my case i mean you know if you if 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 your mind is creating pardon the expression fake news or if you're conflating memory or you think you 
remember something, but actually you were told that it happened by, let's say, your parent, uh, and you make the the secondhand telling into what you think is a memory, then, you know, by that measure, you're a replicant. There, there are a few key tests that various people offer th- over the course of the movie to determine whether or not the person they're talking to is actually human. And I'm also going to ask you to get uh, head on on the mic because you're a little coming from the side right there. Uh, classic replicant technique of speaking into a microphone right there. So now we can hear you f- um, in your full-throated human voice. Uh, but so so one test uh, is can can you pass this this really wonderful in how maddeningly abusive uh, this verbal test is uh, that Ryan Gosling's K is subjected to every time he returns to headquarters from going out on an assignment. Uh, This is, uh, I forget the name of the test in the original Blade Runner, even if they give it a name in this new one, but it is a test where the, uh, you know, someone, you you stare into something that is detecting minor movements and contractions and expansions in your iris as you are just assaulted with question after question that are designed to elicit an emotional response. But in fact, the contents of the questions, at least to my reading in this particular movie, uh, the contents of the questions are almost completely irrelevant. It's entirely the way that they are delivered. They're they're rushed, they're overwhelming, they're almost shouted at Brian Gosling as he is trapped in this kind of gleaming white cage of a, yeah, a cell before he's admitted back into the area where good replicants can go. Uh, and depending on how he responds to these questions, uh, the you know, the questioner can tell whether or not he is uh, an emotionally empathic or emotionally alive uh, human or a, a deadened and obedient replicant. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> that those scenes didn't quite work for me because I, it, so you seem to have understood. Is, is that based on the 1982 original that if there's any emotion shown uh, that's, you know, if you're I mean, a normal human would would be upset by that kind of intense interrogation, but a replicant just stays in its non-emotional state. Is that the idea? So that's a a key uh, kind of motif of the 1982 film, which, so this movie uh, being uh, like any good sequel has a number of wonderful kind of rhymes and uh, inversions of what we may expect from watching the 1982 Blade Runner. If 1982 Blade Runner follows a human uh, police officer, uh, played by Harrison Ford, named Rick Deckard, who is tracking down replicants. And as he tracks down these replicants, he begins to question more and more whether he himself is a replicant. I think the movie is deliberately a little ambiguous on that, maybe le- you know, leaning towards uh, Deckard being human, but never giving us outright that answer. You mean the original? In the original, De- you know, Deckard is a human, maybe questioning his own uh, humanity. Here we have Ryan Gosling, who is quite confident from the, outs- you know, from the start that he is a replicant. And then his status as a replicant uh, becomes more and more ambiguous over the course of the movie. Now the movie because, does because he discovers because he there's discovers, a child that he's supposed to terminate, and he says, I, "I've never retired uh, anybody that was anything that was, that was born." So this is the second determination of you know of quote unquote right. humanity, not just how you respond to this empathy test, but also uh, were you born or were you created? And I think this movie, uh, you know, clearly they're. Well, maybe maybe it's not a determination of humanity because clearly there are a lot of you know life forms in in this world that that are born that are not human. But this is one way of distinguishing between the artifice of replicants and the kind of more natural biological life of humans, uh, and what is so upsetting to both uh, Gosling's character and to the various police officers he's working with, and ultimately the 
kind of the main pursuit of the baddie in, in the, the the bad guy in this in this movie uh, is whether or not replicants can reproduce. And I think in that uh, that aspect of um, being able to perpetuate yourself is something that the movie throws out as uh, you know as unique to non artificial life that he is kind of grasping for. And I think the connotations of reproduction, you know, are of course. Uh, capacity for intimacy, for sexual relationship with uh, another being, for uh, any kind of emotional connection, not just a matter of um, of physically reproducing, but all of the different kind of more human emotional attachments that go with that. Um, and then, if, and then you mentioned, of course, the third big one is memory. Um, do you have real memories? Uh, are these memories implanted in you? Uh, and I think that at least for the first hour and a half or so i was really with really for the duration of us following pretty exclusively the ryan gosling character i was really with him as he struggled with these three elements of his own potential humanity can he reproduce does he have actual memories and is he empathic yeah no i i i think so i mean i think i think uh now, Ryan Gosling is the guy who was in that musical that we talked about. La La Land. La La yes. Land, you know, and, uh, you know, in that, in, in, in that he was supposed to be singing and he was sort of singing most of that. And in this movie, he is also very, um, he's extremely laid back. I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's a, uh, you know, I said to myself, I made a little note, if, the, if he's a replicant as he's presented to us, why should I care about him? I think, I think it's a tribute to... Um, the kind of um, line that he walks that you, you, you do have empathy for him. And, um, uh, and I, I think that he does such a one, I think Gosling as an actor does such a wonderful job of, you know, we can talk about, cause Harrison Ford is featured prominently in this movie as well. And I think both Ford and Gosling could be uh, potentially dismissed as one note actors who kind of play themselves on the screen. There's a Harrison Ford personality, the Han Solo personality that we can see over and over again in Blade Runner and the original Star Wars and Air Force One <laughs> witness. I mean, he is uh, the kind of roguish, smirking, attractive um, uh, man who is, uh, you know, he, he has a bit of that film noir private eye and that he operates according to his own code, but he's, uh, you know he's he's a lovable, mischievous man, and I think that the half smirk that Harrison Ford uh, reveals over and over again in so many of his performances communicates that um, almost uh, overwhelmingly to you know to the detriment of any kind of nuance and character. I think Gosling is someone who you know he is even even when we know even when we think we know that he is just a replicant he communicates the kind of boredom and disaffection and kind of moroseness of his character so well that from the start, I thought this is such an emotionally expressive person, even though the emotion that he's expressing is one of just kind of being depressed with his life. Uh, and I thought that, you know, for a replicant to express that level of kind of depression on screen was a pretty nice, um, you know, battering of my expectations as a viewer, because I'm not, expecting a replicant to express anything, but instead what we get expressed is a kind of dour, morose sensibility. Did you mm. get that from, from Gosling in, in the first hour and a half, at least, that he was <laughs> expressive, but not in an upbeat, chipper, roguish kind of way, but just in a bit of a handsome, sad sack kind of way? Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think he's, uh, you know, I think he, you know, that's the, that's the, the success of, of his role, I mean, he carries the whole movie, uh, uh, you know, with uh, 
with our sympathy or he doesn't. I think no, I think I think that I think that works very well. I mean, the the um uh his relationship to these like a fantasy uh like women when he comes home from a tough day tracking down replicants, he goes to his you know, he doesn't do much eating or drinking. You see him, st- you know, I mean, he sort of stands in a kitchen where nobody has made anything but poured a soda or something. And uh, for for intimacy, he, uh, you know, he sort of, he has all these uh, uh, girls that change dresses and shapes and stuff. I mean, it's pretty, uh, and then when, and, and this- Although all- we should say it's just one girl. I mean, this is his hologram wife. Like right. It's joy. Holog- right. Whatever her name is. Yeah. And then when, and then when she- Im- you know, embraces him, or they have a kiss. You see, uh, not just two of her hands kind of tussling the nape of his neck. It's four hands. I mean, she's all these. She, <clears throat> she's. I look. I mean, you know, sign me up. That looked pretty good to me. Oh, but what I thought that was such a wonderful uh, uh, new kind of plot line to this movie. Uh, whereas we don't just have the division between replicants and humans as in the original Blade Runner, but we have a third gradation of kind of artificial humanity in this hologram wife. I, I didn't write down the name of the actress who plays Joy, but this is, you know, a, a woman who exists entirely within the technology of Ryan Gosling's home, and yet she has as much longing to be, at, you know, just embodied in the way that Ryan Gosling's K is, whereas K is longing to be human. There are these kind of three tiers of right, humanity right. and inhumanity and, that and, are constantly, you know, vying to be something else. Right, and at the point where his his uh, ruminations and his turns into a kind of hope that he actually might be the child of the replicant, you know, Deckard conjugation, from the chosen one, the chosen <laughs> one, the Keanu Reeves character, whatever this is, you know, that, or or or. Uh, we can talk. We should talk about the kind of spiritual, mystical things here, but um, ripoffs of Christian mythology. But but uh, at a certain point, when they're when they're you know when he's intimate with his hologram mistresses, their girlfriends, um, uh, he he yearns to have his own name, and he wants to be called not you know K number two four nine eight seven, but some reason i guess is it she but he ends up with the name joe right she bestows that she upon bestows him. Yeah. the name and he says we're going to call you joe and when that happens i want you to delete me from the console so she this other this hologram creature has some you know has all, all these all these all these um uh uh creatures created by humans these i guess uh, the products of artificial intelligence They've picked up along the way the desire to, uh, to be human, and and, I, and you know I mean it's 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 touching you know in in its own. I th- I think that one key uh, you know de- um, descriptor of what it means to be human that is that is left out of all of these different tests we've been talking about and quite deliberately is intelligence and that all of these different as you just said you know this is these are two different you know levels of artificial intelligence between the replicant and the hologram and i think that the tragedy if there is any tragedy in the way that you know the humans interact with these uh two different um artificial creations that they are the latter two are so clearly intelligent and so clearly capable of living independent lives of of feeling um you know pretty of of understanding the world and of their role in the world and i think the abuse of those intelligent creatures by i mean i love the way that that uh 
that Kay flinches when he's walking down the hallways of the police department at the LAPD when he first returns there after the initial uh, kind of replicant hunt down. Um, we see this, you know, we've just seen him take down this this massively strong replicant. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that opening scene in a second right. because I thought it was maybe the strongest scene in the movie. But we've right. just seen him endure quite a bit of physical abuse and then exhibit quite a bit of courage uh, and, you know, persistence in taking down this guy. And then we see him walking down a hall of supposed colleagues and he's flinching as people walk by. And then we see him get to his apartment and a little old lady, you know, is giving him a hard time for being a replicant. It's once he kind of re-enters the world of humanity, we see where he sits on that that totem pole, which is a one of uh, kind of arbitrary abuse. This is, you know, we understand that replicants exist in the society as much for people to feel good about themselves, people in pretty, di- you know, people who have not been lucky enough to escape this, you know, rapidly decaying planet, you know, replicants are a way for them to exert their authority and, and dominion and, you know, sense of self-confidence over over something else and the replicants are those something else well i think i i mean again i mean that's uh, i I think you're probably right but uh i i you know i I think it's uh i'm not sure all of what you say is in fact in the movie and i think i think i think if there's a risk in uh in um in this sequel and i think maybe one of the reasons why ultimately it's um not as gripping as uh the the original 1982 uh, blade runners because you know, it, it it's it's more complicated. Uh, you know, you have these two different levels of replicant. Uh, you know, and there's some sort of potential rebellion. The, the you know, towards the end of the movie, the part that you uh, sort of snoozed Boy, a bit through. Don't even get to the I replicant mean, rebellion. I think I may have missed that 45 minute. Yeah, point they're line. sitting down there. There and they, you know, because they, if because if it is true that you can um conjugate with a a human uh, if you can do that as a replicant well they're as good you know they're as good as they 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 you know they want you know a piece of this planet god knows why it's just a sort of a rainy mess but um but i you know that complicates things i mean and and uh you know i remember the original replicant the uh, original um oh and we see the uh we see the uh, wonderful 1940s replicant that um, Harrison Ford fell in love with in, in 1982. Right. She comes back, Rachel. Right. Rachel, and they, you know, when when uh, oh my gosh, we have to talk about Wallace and that weird <laughs> blind character who presents her to him, and then he looks at her, you know, because they they because they want something from Deckard, and he looks at her and examines her, and she's like, you know, Ida Lupino or something. She's he, but then he turns, you know, and he takes her hand, and you think it's gonna, you know, you're waiting for the violins, and he turns away from her and says, "Her eyes are supposed to be green," <laughs> and it turned out that they made a mistake in in, in fabricating her. So then the, the the horrible monster lady shoots uh, Rachel in the head, and she just falls over. <laughs> I'm, I'm already confused, and you can tell that. I mean, this movie is, I think, a hundred. You said 164 minutes. This is a very long movie, right. uh, and it is one that really pivots about two thirds into being about uh, Kay's pursuit of this. You know, trying to figure out whether he is or whether someone else is this child born to a replicant, and his grappling with, you know what is he is he a replicant is he a human is he something in between how does he relate to this hologram wife who also longs to be uh if not quite fully human something in between before we um maybe get to uh well i think denis villeneuve's uh strongest uh you know skills as a director is in world building uh, and creating these incredible 
um, kind of evocative environments that, you know, if Blade, if 1982 Blade Runner was exclusively confined to, and again, a beautifully imagined scene, but it was exclusively confined to inner city LA. I mean, we only see the kind of the gray, rainy, hyper-commercialized, you know, advertisements and sex at every corner and danger every corner. In this one, we are not just in a city. In fact, we travel all over Southern California. We get to go to the trash heaps of San Diego and we get to get to the the barren farms uh, outside of LA. Um, But um, before we get there, I do want to say one thing that just came to mind. You mentioned the the Christian imagery or allusions in this movie. And I do want to throw out one... uh, um, One theory for uh, this movie's naming of Ryan Gosling's character Kay after uh, some of the eponymous figures in Franz Kafka's novel. You have Joseph Kay. I mean, we have both, this character's named both Joe and Kay, right? Joseph Kay, the, uh, not hero, but at least the the main character of the trial. And I believe the main character in the castle is also Kay. And here we have, uh, you know, figures who are desperately trying to figure out what they have done wrong. Right. Um, what in this this ambiguous kind of punishing world uh, they can understand? Where in you know where does humanity exist in this kind of arbitrarily kind of violent and humorous and and punishing world? And I I I wonder if there's any bit of the to use that dreadfully loaded term any bit of the Kafka esque in uh, in this character's pursuit to understand something that is. Uh, almost Im- impossible to to wrap your head around and that question of what what does it mean to to be human oh yeah no i think that's a very good comparison um uh but um i don't know i don't know but i don't think this movie has many literary emissions i think it's more in the sci-fi star wars adventure mold uh, than any kind of long pursuits of the well of i the would soul. You know, one of the good things about this director is that he does, as you say, he create worlds, but he, but he also creates, um, uh, you know, a kind of. Uh, he's very, very effective at creating lo- a sense of longing. Hmm. I don't know if you do that visually, but I'm, I'm I was thinking of the Amy, Amy, uh, Amy Adams character, the Amy Adams character who plays a linguist in Arrival. And, and a, for right. anyone who hasn't seen Arrival, it's this uh, kind of this alien invasion interspecies communication movie, right? Where our, our protagonist is a professional linguist who's charged with figuring out how to communicate with these invading aliens. Right. And so, and so her longing in that, and that is, is to sort of understand what it means to be, to be alive, to be human, to have language, um, by trying to find a way to interact with, with these, uh, creatures who arrive and, you know, and you know, speak a language that's sort of, you know, kind of hologrammy, calligraphic, um, hieroglyphic-y type things that she uses her expertise to analyze. It's the same thing going on here. He's his his longing is to kind of um, get beyond the boundary of of you know the artificial intelligence creature that he is to, you know, to get to the next step. I mean, and that and that you know that that's a that's that. That's what carries the movie for me, as much as you know the tour de force uh, creation of this drippy world with flying corvettes and you know and other kinds of things. Which you know, I I, I think uh, I was asking myself, what's the difference between the world of Star Wars and that franchise and the world of Blade Runner? And this is obviously much more ragged, much more noir, 
much more kind of threadbare. Well, I think the city is, but I wonder if we could spend a second talking about the the exurbs or the rural territory uh, or the coastal territory that is covered in this movie. So we do have, I mean, the opening scene is in this barren farmland where, you know, there's a former rep or a uh, kind of a rogue replicant who is growing um, leeches or some kind of pretty grotesque protein. Pro- but protein, yeah. but th- this is not uh, like the densely packed pleasure house of inner city LA um, that where there's constantly raining. I think if there's a defining color scheme to this movie, it's it's more wrapped around the oranges and the reds than the original Blade Runner's grays and blues. Uh, in that there's like an aridity to the environment, especially when, when we get out to the, the trash heaps of San Diego as well, which may seem, you know, that struck me the most like a, a Star Wars world where you have all of these, uh, these um, kind of cast aside uh, figures who are scurrying around trying to right. salvage as, as much and, of the, he, the he, little bald he, orphans. You right, know, he the, visits the orphanage. The nickel. But, I mean, yeah, that was really like half Star Wars and half uh, Oliver Twist. Or but I something. think that Villeneuve brings Blade Runner outside of the city in a way that it's kind of difficult to imagine in the 1982 version because it is so wrapped up in how... You know, it's almost, it's like a, a sci-fi 20th century fear of what the urbanization of the world will result in, where there's just inescapable commerce, uh, inescapable traffic, and sex, and smoke, and violence. Here, you have that kind of dissipating a bit into this uh, just empty, and vacant, and barren um, farmland. Well, yeah. As a native I, of LA, did did this resonate with you? <laughs> well, I said to myself, they're not going to be happy at the San Diego Chamber of Commerce for, I think the little title says the San Diego dump. Uh, and in fact, you know, it, it, that's an inside joke there because if you grow up in Los Angeles, everybody, every all anybody talks about is how great it is in San Diego where they have the world's most perfect mean temperature. In LA, you can't breathe because of the smog. So the I mean, they 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 stuck the knife in San Diego, and this there was no this, zoo uh, zoo no. with wonderful pandas in this no, San Diego. And I thought it's that just was little bald orphans harvesting nickel. So weak. I mean, and and yeah. and, the, and and you know the 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 guy who uh, you know selling off these kids right, to the and, and they get buyer. right, and they get the ledger that shows what happened to this particular child that he's searching for, and and the pages are gone from the ledger. I mean. You know, it's you know there there are a lot of um, there are a lot of scenes that are kind of uh, you you talked about not too many literary references, but you know th- this stuff is uh, you know these are these are you know pages from Dickens and yeah. and things like that. But but this is a very intelligent director, and you know you sort of can forgive his faults. And I, you know I I mean it took me a while, but but um but but the but the thing I um. And, you know, we haven't talked about that, uh, who the child is and, you know, um, it, it, uh, but, but what really this movie seems to me to be about, I don't know if, uh, if our listeners are aware that this is the week where, where, you know, in, um, in synagogues all over the world, people are after the Jewish high holidays, they start reading the Genesis story once again, the creation of the world and, what the Genesis story really is, is it, to, to my reading, uh, is is who controls procreation, mm-hmm. right? God gets upset with people when they start messing around with the powers to create, and this story is about who can create, and uh, you know it's a very you know and it's it's you know sci-fi is uh, is kind of superficial, 
uh, it doesn't go into depth about these things, but it's you know this who 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 is the product of this replicant human? Um, they've got to find her, and of course she turns out to be a kind of bubble girl uh, who has who are the you know the kind of the 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 evil genius Wallace who has con- who controls this world keeps in a bubble she because she I guess uh, is the baseline in order to create artificial memory because she's the only one left there who has real memory so let's let's dive I, I love that idea of talking about uh, Genesis focusing on uh, who has the power to create and then this movie's um, playing with that theme but first let me say that uh, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with the New Haven Independence Alan Appel about Blade Runner 2049, uh, the new, I think, pretty unexpected sequel to Ridley Scott's 1982 Blade Runner. Uh, this one directed by Denis Villeneuve, starring Ryan Gosling, uh, and also featuring uh, Harrison Ford reprising his role as as Blade Runner Rick Deckard. Uh, but let's let's talk a, for a second about the bad guy in this movie, because the bad guy in the original Blade Runner, if you rem- remember, mm. <clears throat> is played by Rucker Hauer. It is a a rogue replicant, maybe the roguest of the replicants, named Roy Batty. Uh, this um, this Aryan, you know, kind of bleached blonde hair, blue eyed. Uh, he almost looks like a stormtrooper uh, in his in his physique and rigidity and, and cruelty. But he is someone who is completely, you know, devoid of empathy. This is almost like Terminator level. Uh, I will do anything that I need to do to survive. Uh, and I, in my four years on this planet, you know, that, that's how long replicants have to live in the original Blade Runner, I'm going to inflict as much pain as possible to punish, you know, people for creating me, for creating these uh, these ticking time bombs that were only meant to serve mankind. So he is the uh, the kind of the, the ideal version, or maybe the unideal version, of what everyone fears in a replicant, this totally unempathic, uh, psychopathic figure. Uh, here, the bad guy is quite you know explicitly human we have the creator of the replicants is the one maybe wreaking the most damage upon the world this is a character played by um jared leto named neander wallace wallace a great a sci-fi name if there ever was one and he is a a blind bearded long-haired uh kind of messianic cultish looking figure but he's Uh, the genius who saved the world who's with art, being able to produce enough food or something like and that. And I think was able to come up with a new version of Replicant that wasn't bent on murdering humanity. Uh, and so he is the one who is, you know, as, as you said about Genesis, he's desperately trying to figure out how to create, how to create Replicants that can reproduce themselves so that mankind will have this unending uh, kind of bounty of free labor that they can abuse or use or do whatever they want with. Um but, I mean, but but what's what's troubling is that he he needs the human replicant child in order to work backwards. I guess to to be able for the right. replicants themselves is does he want the replicants themselves to be able to uh, have intercourse, so to speak, and produce other replicants? They I have made a note here that, uh, that Wallace has this company called Terrell. I guess he's the head. Well, he's the, he, I think he, he had, Who's Terrell, Terrell? Terrell was the name of the company in the original Blade Runner that created Replicants. So I think Wallace either the re- successor. replaced, yeah, the successor to Terrell, or maybe he bought it up, but. Bought it up. Yeah. But so the, the final trick is procreation. And uh, when, when, when they give Brian Gosling his marching orders, they say, 
there is a child, bring it to me. Now, who else said there is a child, <laughs> bring it to me? Does that ring a bell? We're not in Genesis anymore. Right. So they, you know, they play the Jesus card many times here also. And uh, you know, I think that also if, if maybe you haven't uh, picked up the New Testament in a while but have rewatched Star Wars ad nauseum, <laughs> this will be a very familiar plot line. I mean, the, I think if you describe this movie and Villeneuve's uh, kind of skills as a director as representing intense longing on screen, I think this movie begins to lose me when the longing shifts from longing to understand one's innermost nature, whether one is human or replicant or whatever, to longing to figure out, am I the chosen one? <laughs> am I the, you know, the center uh, of this, um, of this wonderful myth that, put, you know, the, the Neo in the Matrix or the Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars, the, the Jesus in the New Testament, am I the one that the entire world orbits around? That's right. And the, and the part that you... Uh, and that just gets so boring. <laughs> I mean, well, I think that's why you nodded off a bit there yeah. towards the end, because in, indeed he follows Kluwe after clue after clue and when he gets to the uh, uh the, the the nascent replicant rebel uh bunker or whatever it is um they turn to him uh, one of the replicants turns to him and said in a, in a, in a moment of revelation the big turning point in the Ryan Gosling character's uh, life is that you thought you were the one don't you understand we all think we're the one which is really quite wonderful because this 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 um it's hard to know whether that is a flaw in their uh, in their in their creation in their programming, uh, or in fact that is what Wallace has put in them, and the piece that's missing is for them to to act on that and to create. And the, so he needs he needs this child so he can do his final piece of uh, ledger domain. So maybe d- despite that debunking of the ecocentrism of the you know two hours of pursuit uh, you know, of the majority of the movie um, that I, I think I may have missed that line in my <laughs> dozing at, at around 1230 uh, on, on Monday night watching this movie. But I do think that regardless of that sudden flip, most of the movie is about this character who is, is convinced that he is, is a chosen one, you know, that he holds some kind of supreme unique significance in, in this universe uh, and is, is desperately trying to, to track that down. Um, well, I think that's the se- the the secret to, in some measure. I mean, underneath everything we're talking about is this uh, is this human experience. I think that we all have when we look at our parents, you know, e- either with admiration or shame or whatever, and we wonder, do I really belong to them? Right? Uh, are they my real parents? Uh, and it's, I, I think, a kind of universal human, um, you know, uh, point of inquiry. And I think that we get a wonderful model for the abusive parent in in Wallace, and that he is someone who is kind of constantly creating these new children, <clears throat> only to slash them above the abdomen or whatever oh cruelty God, he yeah. inflicts upon them. Now, yeah. Villeneuve is, you know, having worked in, on movies like Sicario and Arrival, that blend aspects of horror with sci-fi there are some incredibly striking images even in the um the more familiar kind of genre tropes 
in particular, the the layer that Wallace sits in this this I don't know it's some kind of underground bunker or cavern, but it's just rippling with this gold light and shadows. And even before we see Wallace's face, we just see him kind of surrounded. It's a, it's it's a pretty. It's like he's living inside of a volcano. It's the ultimate Bond villain layer, perhaps. But yeah. it's it's and to see the you know his latest replicant sliding out of this plastic sack that is suspended a few feet above the ground and then covered in this amniotic fluid as she's riding on the ground. I mean, it's, it's a pretty incredibly staged and directed, um, image to communicate just how nefarious this guy is. I think that we should give credit to Villeneuve for being that talented of a director to put together these, uh, you know, the, these very powerful images, however familiar or trite they, they may prove to be. Um, he knows how to put together something that's that's pretty scary. Oh yeah, no, I I you know I kept on saying to myself, I mean you know these issues of um, <laughs> you know altering uh, uh you know altering uh you know the genetic makeup of uh, you know embryos. I mean they, we're just beginning to work on these kinds of things, and the idea that this movie is called Blade Runner two hundred four nine that in fact. You know, it it asks you to believe that you know in um, you know thirty years from now, or that they'll have reached the point where these things will be rolling off the conveyor belt with this guy uh, after a blackout and an eco catastrophe. I mean, it's it's hard to believe uh, that that uh, we're at that stage in twenty forty nine. So it, it undermined my. Uh, well, I should say the, the original Blade Runner takes place in 2019. So, right. and obviously, even the movie from 1982, right. its description of 2019 is not quite what we, at least what I expect to see in in 2019. So, right. I think as uh, 30 years from the world envisioned back in Ridley Scott's film, this certainly seems plausible. But yes, being so close to mm. 2049 now, it doesn't quite. Um, it doesn't quite seem to be that actual of a threat. I do want to, as as we were wrapping up our conversation, I do want to get hear your thoughts on on Harrison Ford mm. uh, in this movie, just because I think that he was uh, not not the strongest part for for both of us. And I wonder if you could uh, help explain to the listeners why, when Harrison Ford came on the screen and then stayed on the screen for about an hour at the end of this movie, uh, why it may have taken a bit of a turn from one that you were pretty, for the most part, enjoying. Yeah, no, I was. We were we were joking before we went on the air that I, that I, whether Harrison Ford had in his contract that he had to remain on screen for X number of minutes because, you know, he's. Uh, I, I mean, heart goes out to you know older actors in general to find roles that they can play, but it becomes you know doubly complicated when you're you're so associated with a film that you you you're not only have to you have to appear as uh, as an older actor, but as an older actor playing who you who you were precisely in the same film, it's really it's really quite a challenge. And um, you know, I I just uh, uh, I found it almost like um, uh, you know like a cameo uh, th- that uh, that everybody around the movie was saying cut 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 cut, and nobody could cut. Well, it comes off as you know something that we see all the time in these franchise, you know, movie franchises. Uh, these callbacks to previous entries, 
as a way of fan service. I mean, you That's right. you get a little jolt of excitement when you recognize such a key figure from an earlier movie that you loved. And unfortunately, uh, that's not a, a line or a scene here, but it's a person, <laughs> it's an actor, uh, the main character of, of the previous installment of Blade Runner. And I think that, you know, as you're saying, yes, it's a challenge for older actors to reprise a role, but it's, you know, all the more of a disservice to Harrison Ford and that character, and who knows how responsible he is for it or not, but this character hasn't changed at all since the 1982 film. And I think just to have an older version of the exact same character of, of Rick Deckard, someone who does have that, that smirk, that insouciance, uh, maybe moves a little bit slower, but is still the kind right. of center of attention. You yeah. Know? yeah, and actually he had something to, to work with uh, that he could have he could have done something more with because, I mean, the replicant is, <laughs> is in many ways in the interchange is is more quote unquote human than Harrison Ford is he he's saying don't you don't you want to know where the child is uh, it's your child and then Harrison Ford has to say stuff like uh, you know when you love someone you have to be a stranger to them or some such big pronouncements like that right. to explain why he's kind of erased all the traces that might lead uh, the forces of Wallace to him. And you know, it's just, it, and you know, it's it's hard to buy that. And he and he and he lives in, you know, what, what's also hard to buy in this, um, in you know, visually the the two worlds that the director takes you back and forth from, is you know the utter the utter utter, utter um, destitution of a world where every everything looks like, you know, like like the plumbing in your house is leaking and it's raining all the time and there's sewage and filth everywhere. And every time you enter an interior like the place where Harrison Ford lives. I mean, it's like um, like a des- like a designer's mansion in Brentwood. Although the so he, <laughs> I believe he lives in like a former casino, right in Las oh, Vegas. Yeah. There's some there's some grandiosity. But it look, it to, looks like Nagasaki pretty, on the outside, <laughs> and, then and then you walk in, <laughs> and then right he has the full bar of whiskey available to him and for whatever he's feeling. He's kind of drinking, but it. I do think that 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 pretty stark contrast works really well in Ryan Gosling's apartment in. LA when he you know walks through these hallways and streets and alleys of danger and abuse and then he then he's carved out you know this replicant has carved out you know a few square feet of civility where he can sit comfortably and, chat with and, his and hologram play wife with his hologram and love. and eat dinner um but and you, but, listen to classical music i think that that juxtaposition works quite well there especially because his room isn't too ostentatious it's just clean right and everything else is so not clean but you know what this puts me in mind of uh, and i think it's it's there and i'm i'm yeah, you know, uh, is a predecessor is a movie called Soylent Green. Uh, I don't know if listeners are uh, that familiar with it, but it also is a kind of post-apocalyptic world in which Charlton Heston plays a kind of cop, and and uh, they're all living on this like artificial s- soy stuff. I guess this is like an anti-vegetarian, anti-tofu film. But you know, they when 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 well, it doesn't prove to be tofu, right? It, it doesn't. Proves- pro- it proves to be. Uh, people or something right. like that. I think that's the, they call it damn dirty grid. apes it was, you know. <laughs> but 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 charlton heston after you know a day of being a cop comes into his and his place looks like an, you know an efficiency apartment that i had in manhattan mm-hmm. some years ago and then he you know he sits with i guess i think it's edward g robinson wonderful old edward g robinson and you know they're they're saving something like one real carrot or, or a piece of celery um and um, you know, 
these different interiors seem to you know be right there's no to that but the, right but there's no rationing in the las vegas casino that harrison ford lives in right it's just no. it, right it's just an extension of the i don't know the excess that has led to the destruction of why, cities like la except he has it all but he's on the run why in the world would he be living in a place like that he's a refugee he's he, why why would he be living there it's really, and he's introduced about two hours in. I mean, it's not like you see Harrison Ford's face throughout the course of the movie. He very, you know, emphatically comes about two thirds in and then he stays uh, for the remainder of the movie. He and, stays and he gets beaten. He gets the crap beaten out of him 900 times. And, you know, you can accept the Ryan Gosling recovering because he's, he's, he's a replicant. But Harrison Ford, you know, he looks pretty beat up just with, just with being, you know, 65 or yeah. 70 years old. But you know, you you take that kind of beating, and you know he he still looks pretty good in the next scene. It's hard to it's hard to. So understand. I think at least where I ended up in this movie, uh, definitely one of the more imaginative and well directed sequels as far as sequels go. But by the time that it becomes you know too beholden to the fan service elements that we come to expect from you know these reprisals of nineteen eighties beloved movies. Uh, it it devolves into something all, a little too familiar in the way that Blade Runner was, you know, wildly imaginative, and the, the first, you know, half of this, uh, I think, equals and kind of carves out its new perspective on the Blade Runner world in exploring the world outside of the city and exploring the world from the replicant's perspective, the replicant longing uh, to. I don't even know if if K wants to be human to start. I think he's quite upset by the potential revelation that he could be human. I think he's quite comfortable um, with with the world, that, with the role that that he has been filling in this world for as long as he's existed. Well, in the part that you were were, were asleep in, he he he's, he finally takes um, Harrison Ford to to the uh, little bubble girl, who, right? Who's and this is how daughter. the movie ends, right? And he lies, and he lay, lies down. He lays down. He takes himself onto the steps of this uh, place, and he uh, he he dies from his wounds. But he has unite, but he has united father and daughter, mm -hmm. and so that's the message you're supposed to take well, away. I, yeah, I also found that it, I did see that final scene. I think I woke up for the very end, but I did found you know found the. Um, the two storylines happening at the end of the movie, quite indicative of what I liked and didn't like about it. And that with Ryan Gosling's character, yes, we see him lying down in this, again, beautifully imagined, quite uh, desolate and overbearing uh, snowy staircase uh, where he is, yes, he's dying, but also through his mortality, he seems to be, uh, you know, if mortality is another, in, you know, inevitable kind of qual you know quality of humanity and of life and i think in his death not to go too down the the jesusy route but i think that there is something that you know he is able to connect with what makes him human all the more through his uh kind of succumbing to his injuries uh at the end but then with harrison ford's character you know we just see him go in laying his palm against the glass in which the bubble girl is is encased and it's you know it's everything that we see in every other um other sci-fi movie of and, its ilk. And that is sort of a quote where the director is kind of uh, thinking of his what he did in Arrival where the Amy Adams oh, character right. puts her hand on the on a uh, you know on a bubble and the squid like aliens put their right, with, little tentacles which is up. their way of touching yeah. or writing or something like that. Oh. But I mean the idea of wanting to connect with 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 life uh, I mean it's you you can see why he's the right director for this material yeah. and how he was drawn to it. And that's, you know, I mean, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to be human is like 
your your basic question of all time. And we we can't get out of ourselves. You you're there, Tom Breen. You seem like a human to me, and I'm here. I must seem like a human to you. But you know, we can't ever get out of ourselves. All we have is our perceptions that we're trying to make sense of it. And so the movie really is about these these basic um, Oedipal things. I think it's its power. Well, Blade Runner 2049 is playing just about every theater uh, in the country right now, including the one in downtown New Haven. So if you're interested in anything that Alan and I just uh, spoke about, definitely recommend checking it out. Um, and of course, Blade Runner, the, the original 1982 version, is available on a number of streaming services and at the public library. So uh, check it out. Let us know what you think. You can find a complete archive of Deep Focus episodes at deepfocusradio.com. Uh, Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show and for proving that you are probably not a replicant. I'm still not quite sure. Um, well, I'm going to ask my wife. Let's see what she thinks. Nice to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>